0: Hey, welcome back, and I'm here with my friend Dean Rector.
1: Dean, how you doing today? I'm doing great, Brian. You yeah. normal day in the life of a consultant.
0: Yeah, <laughs> and I understand you're fighting a bit of a cold, so we'll we'll uh, have to uh, have, have to take that into consideration for you. Yeah,
1: I hey, love the summertime cold.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, Dane, you and I go back a, a few years, but I thought maybe you could just talk about. Uh, your early development then, including your education
1: yeah certainly um, well if you want to go way way back in time my dad was a surgeon and my mom was a nurse and they had it all planned out for me to be a doctor uh, yeah until one day when I went to the uh, observatory and watched a surgery at my dad's and realized there is no way in heck I was going to do that
0: <laughs> that's um, the same way I feel
1: yeah. So uh, quickly trying to scramble, I wasn't quite sure where I was going to go, and the uh, my girlfriend at the time, her dad was a civil engineering professor, and he's the one that actually first that introduced me to this field when I was 16, hmm. and took me to the University of Colorado, showed me around, um, and got me thinking about it. A few weeks later, I was at his house for dinner with, of course, his daughter and he had an application to the engineering school at CU all set out aside for me. <laughs> so we talked about it, and we filled out the applications, and lo and behold, I got accepted to the University of Colorado, where I then spent the next seven years after graduation from uh, college, or from high school, uh, completed my bachelor's and. Master's degree in geotechnical engineering, took a fair amount of the advanced coursework in environmental engineering also, thinking that I wanted to be a college professor, but then quickly realized that I probably wasn't cut out to fight through the tenure track required to become a professor, but in looking back, it was probably easier than a career of being a consultant. Uh, right, right. <laughs> I actually ended up being an instructor at CU for three years uh, in graduate school, uh, helping teach the advanced soil mechanic classes. And since then, I've been a consultant now in the world of environmental and geotechnical engineering for about 38 years.
0: Yeah, okay. Yeah, you've got a couple of years on me. What So What uh, what was your career trajectory? Where did you start out?
1: Yeah. So... Um, not quite sure where I wanted to go and doing the uh, mass uh, resume submittal, I ended up at a company with a friend of mine who had gone to school with, and it was a small local company who focused mainly on foundations for light commercial and residential properties. Uh, but lo and behold, they also happened to have not only a mining group, but an environmental group. And quickly, I found myself working on some of the environmental projects, which really seemed to want to call to me at that point in time. And within the first couple of years of my career, I would actually worked on and designed my first solid waste landfill. And I also worked on a couple of remediation projects. We jokingly refer to them as Yankee tank projects. Right. gas station and removing leaky underground storage tanks. Hmm. And I found that I really enjoyed the environmental aspects of this. And in a way, solid waste landfill design was environmental. This was early years. This was before Uh, there was actually true regulations on solid waste. But there's people who wanted to dispose of waste properly, uh, for those of you who aren't familiar, hazardous waste regulations in the United States didn't exist until 1976. So prior to that, you were pretty much free to do what you want with your hazardous waste. And regulations on solid waste, everyday trash that we throw away at our offices and homes, those didn't come into fruition on a national level until 1991. So for the youngsters out there, that seems like a long time ago, but for us, Mark, <laughs> that was definitely during that time.
0: Yeah, that that's a head-scratcher, like, why didn't we get our uh, ducks in a row long before that?
1: Right. So shortly after I realized that I enjoyed the environmental stuff, uh, the Superfund program from the U.S. government was really coming into its own. And for those of you who don't remember Superfund, that was a government program to prioritize the contaminated sites within the United States and either find the potentially responsible parties who could pay for the cleanup, and if not, use taxpayer dollars to clean up these projects. and from that, developed the national priorities list, ranking these contaminated sites, and then implementing programs to take care of them. And I actually worked on quite a few of these Superfund projects early on, but I was losing uh, the allure for it quite quickly, realizing how mismanaged these projects were because they were run by the U.S. government mm. in private. Uh, the funded and operated uh, remediation programs. They probably could have been done for sixty cents on the dollar, but because the government was involved, it was uh, extremely mismanaged and actually began to affect me emotionally, seeing the taxpayers' dollars at waste on these projects. Oh, it's horrible. I do remember working on one project that uh, was a. Uh, chemical weapons factory cleanup. I was involved with that for Uh, six years. uh And before any works actually was done on a Superfund project, they did what was called an RIFS, Medial Investigation Feasibility Study. And this was an active Army base, and the colonel was in charge of it. And I remember him telling the story about he really lost it one day when he realized that $1.5 $1.5 billion had been done studying the site to try to figure out what to do to clean it up. And out of that, $500 million of that was legal fees. Wow. And oh, he that's... was stunned. Yeah. And realized that the lawyers just wished to drag out these projects because they get the bill. And or... once a record of decision the acronym ROD, was reached, then it could move into the cleanup stage and the lawyers were no longer involved. So they had no impetus to want to get it to a final decision. Uh. Uh, one day the colonel said he had just had it with everybody and he had called a meeting for all the lawyers, everybody to come to site, the local regulators, the state regulators, the EPA, everybody came to site, active Army base. He got them in a the room and he brought the MPs in. And he said, you are now under my control. This is an army base. I am God. You will not leave here until we have a record of decision. He said, I have barracks set up for all of you. You may call your families and tell them that you're going to be held here by the US Army. Do whatever you need to do, but we're not leaving. And sure enough, within a few days, after spending $1.5 billion, they finally arrived at a record of decision that allowed them to move into the actual implementation of remediating this chemical weapons factory on an active Army base.
0: Wow, but that, that uh, story is, is worth a lot of uh, consideration. That, that's a remarkable event.
1: Yeah, and, and that's about the time that I really lost my luster for the Superfirm projects, but I always enjoyed the waste containment. And along the lines when I was doing the environmental restoration, I was doing a lot of solid waste landfill design. I also did a lot of environmental cleanup projects for private companies. I worked at a couple of different Xerox manufacturing plants. I did a fair amount of work in Israel at some of their defense sites. I actually worked in Croatia at a uh, uh, munitions dump that was combined with a hazardous waste landfill, and that was quite interesting. Hmm. Um, I also, along those lines, really realized that I enjoyed construction. That's what, what attracted me to civil engineering, geotechnical engineering, when I was 16 wasn't the high-level analysis. It was more the fact of building something. And as those of us in our industry realize, the culmination of almost every project that we do in this business is that something gets built. So it's great that you can do all of these flack analyses and seepage models and, and all of this stuff. But at the end of the day, we actually have to be able to build and implement the project. And that's the part that really excited me. So the mining group at my company that I worked for at the time realized that, you know, there's that need. And so I started to drift more into the mining world probably about 15 years ago, but really related, as a lot of us do, to the waste management aspects of us. Um, I remember my good buddy Dirk Van Ziel once said, the profit at a mine is the little bit of money that's left over after you deal with the waste. And so we realize we really can have an effect on the economics of a mine in that we can come up with economic solutions for their waste handling. And in our world, when we talk about waste, we're talking about waste rock. We're talking about tailings. And believe it or not, at the end of the day, a heap leach pad becomes waste. So we deal with those also. And so looking at the economics of the design the constructability, and then ultimately taking it into the closure aspects of these facilities is where we can start to bring a lot of the engineering disciplines together to help come up with economical but environmentally sound solutions for the mining companies. And so for about the last 15 years, I've pretty much entirely been focused in the mining world, and in fact 100 percent so for the last seven years or so that I've worked at my current company because all they do is mining related activities centered around waste management one way or the other or environmental restoration, environmental management, we do do some pit slope design, which doesn't have a lot to do with waste management, but a good pit slope designer can reduce the amount of waste rock, which will help with waste management also at the end of the day.
0: Yeah, good point. Good point,
1: Dean. Yeah. So, you know, it brought, right now it's brought everything together that I've enjoyed. Um, you have the hard engineering, the construction, and the environmental management aspects of our business, and so it's probably brought me finally, after 38 years in the business, to a very content spot where you know, I feel that all of my skills are well used to not only help our clients, but at the end of the day, help the citizens of the world because we as the general subdivision of civil engineering, that, that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to help build the world to make it a better place for the citizens of the world. And I feel that uh, when we approach our projects that way, Uh, It's very fulfilling, especially to somebody like me.
0: Yeah, that's great. That's a really good way to think about it, too. So what, uh, in your role at your present job, you do a lot of mentoring of uh, more junior staff?
1: Yes, I do. I do a lot of that. So, you know, that uh, teacher part of me has always been in there. That's why I was an instructor for three years at the University of Colorado. And I also, as people who know me, I have no problem with public speaking or sticking my nose into places that doesn't belong. But along those lines, I find a lot of engineers, probably rightfully so, are very introverted and have a hard time sharing and opening up. And so one of the things that I find myself doing is mentoring the younger engineers. mostly around the role of a consultant not in the technical aspect as we know our companies all of us that are in this business we have really good technical people leave that to them to mentor the junior staff on that but what we miss a lot in our business is the senior guys who can mentor the more junior staff in what consulting is Because at the end of the day, if you work for a company like ours or yours, Brian, we are consultants. We have to convey our projects to our clients. We have to work with our projects. Because one of the things we forget sometimes is it's not our project, it's our client's project. We just have the luxury of executing that project for them. That, in turn, turns us into consultants. And so a lot of what I do is mentoring the younger staff on the consulting side of our business. I also help them understand project management. Uh, Project management is an aspect of our business that has to be done. It should be done by people who are passionate about it. It should not be a forced position because as I view it, we're the ones who have to interface with the clients and we have to convey both the business as well as the technical side We have to manage the quality of the project for them. We have to manage their money, their schedule. And one of the things that we forget about is that our clients have a boss also. And I've read a lot of client surveys over the years, and there's Mm -hmm. one thing that really jumps out at me, and it's that the number one complaint of the clients about us consultants is our lack of empathy that we forget to put ourselves in their shoes because our primary job, believe it or not, is to make our client look good to their boss so they can get their bonus and their raise. Right. And And we tend to forget that. That's the consulting side of our business. And that's why we have to have empathy towards our clients. And as project managers, consultants, we have to turn ourselves around and put ourselves in their shoes because there's no reason that, any one of us tomorrow couldn't be the client
0: yeah that's that's a very good point and yeah a lot of times uh, people in our industry just think that they're supposed to complete the assignment that's laid out in black and white in the proposal or the contract or whatever but yeah you're absolutely right you've got a you've got to feel like you can walk a mile in the shoes of your client you've you've got to You've got to understand it as well as they do or better. They may and may not know all the questions and answers that are even supposed to be voiced.
1: That's correct. And that, that leads into the technical expertise because, as you're aware, in our business, we cannot do our business without the technical experts. A lot of times the project managers are not the technical experts. They need to be the Jack or Jackies of all trades. They need to have a good understanding of what we do as a business, but they have to convey that to our clients. The other thing we forget to do is we forget just to talk to our clients as people and ask them the questions. What is their business objective? Why are they doing this project? Why do they have this schedule? And that helps you get into their shoes and as you say, walk that mile in their shoes and walk it with them. So. In mentoring a lot of the junior staff, what I do is I try to convey that to them, their requirements, their goals, their mission as a consultant. I'll leave the technical training to the technical experts. Uh, But, again, somebody has to do that mentoring because at the end of the day, our company, once we walk away, has to survive as a consulting company. And consulting is not something you learned in college. No, right, not at all. The traits that you need to be a project manager started probably as soon as you could talk. But the actual focus on being a project manager or consultant, we as the industry need to prepare our junior staff who have the desire to take over that role to be prepared to do so. And even if you're not going to be the project manager, it behooves you to fully understand the project and the requirements of the project management side so that you can help your project manager fulfill the requirements and the goals and missions that we've set forward to bring to our clients to help execute their projects.
0: Yeah, it's fantastic. And you mentioned communications and the client. And I, I can tell you from a lot of experience that if you're going to be late or if you need something else, you're waiting on something, it's a lot better to communicate that early to the client while there's still time to make some kinds of adjustments if necessary.
1: Yes, yeah, you yeah, hit it right on the head. Yeah. Um, because, again, it's their project. It's not ours. Yeah, so why blindside them with anything? Right, right. Absolutely. They may have a deadline for a reason. Maybe or- they want to cut part of the scope to meet the deadline. Maybe they want to extend the deadline. But we shouldn't make that decision.
0: Right, yeah. Excellent point. Excellent point.
1: Yeah, there's an old saying that uh, bad news is not like fine wine. It does not get better with age. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I have to agree with you there. Well, Dean, I I think we've covered just about everything I wanted to talk about. Is there any other issues that you wanted to discuss today?
1: No. Um, You know, for anybody that listens to this, uh, it's a good chance you've been through an engineering school and you've started or well into a consulting career. I remember at freshman orientation, the dean said, look to your left, look to your right. Four years from now, two of the three of you will not be here. And lo and behold, that turned out to be true. So it took that intestinal fortitude and drive of you to get through engineering school to get to this position. Uh, and bear in mind that if you listen to this, you're probably that civil or geotechnical engineer. And never forget, we really are the stewards of our planet for the citizens of the world. And take that approach into your projects. Don't forget the economic side of it, because obviously if we don't get paid, we're not going to be here. I have much better things I'd rather do. (laughs) But if you're going to do this job, take it to heart and keep that in mind.
0: Yeah, that's, that's great. I really appreciate that. Okay. Well, Dean, I appreciate you spending some time with us and, uh, and and getting us informed on the various things we talked about today. I thought it was uh, very enlightening and uh, some good lessons. And I think maybe one of the takeaways really for the more junior staff is they really ought to be seeking out a mentor. It doesn't have to be anything formal. Just find somebody that you f- you think has wisdom and spend time with
1: them. Correct. Yes. Remember, mentoring can't be forced. It's a voluntary. So find that person that you're comfortable with and you can talk with and be open with them. And that's really going to help the junior staff grow into us old folks.
0: Yeah, right. Okay. Excellent, Dean. Well, thanks again uh, for spending some time with us and hope to see you soon.
1: Yeah, and thank you, Brian. Yeah.
0: Well, that's it. I'm Brian, and this is Behind the Scenes with Brian. Until next time, keep on rockin'. Yay! Hey, everyone. Welcome back. This is Brian, and this is Behind the Scenes with Brian. Hey, uh... I have been having difficulties getting an interview with my son accomplished. We've undertaken that uh, numerous times now and technology has failed us. And I told my son we should take a little bit of a break so we can come back fresh next time so we're not just going through it robotically. And so we'll have that coming up. We're going to take a hiatus next week for Thanksgiving. Uh, And I thought this time around I would read to you uh, my latest blog. Uh, this should be a fairly popular topic. It's entitled You pay for a reasonable geotechnical investigation whether you have one or not. That is one of my favorite expressions. I think that I made it up. If I didn't, I wish I had. What am I talking about? Well, it's pretty typical for a geotechnical engineer to carefully de- develop a site investigation plan and present that plan to the owner. The plan carefully developed Taking into account the site conditions, planned facilities, etc., the owner often discusses the need for various investigation points and techniques. Sometimes, usually, some activities of the site investigation are eliminated. It feels like an opening bid that gets negotiated down. Sometimes, usually, you have to hold your ground and explain why certain components of the site in- investigation are necessary. And then your client tells you why you don't need all that and honestly sometimes we really don't need all that but more often than not we get surprised by something in the field and we could use additional investigation work. I recall a simple foundation design assignment in Nevada. Expecting the normal valley fill alluvium colluvium and being sympathetic to the client's budgetary restrictions, I arranged for an excavator and I sent one of my engineers out to inspect the excavations. Naturally, I would have preferred to use a geotechnical drill rig, but the excavator was less expensive. What my engineer found in the field confused him. When he returned, he showed me a bag of material that was obtained from the excavation. It was sand. Sand dune sand. Nope, we're not building a structure on shallow foundations on sand dune sand. We had obligingly saved the client money on the site investigation, but we were unable to develop the designed for the foundations that they needed. They did not retain us for any additional work, and I often wonder if some poor outfit had designed the shallow foundations that the client wanted on those sand dune sands. On another major project, the site investigation was completed for a major infrastructure installation. The client negotiated down the extent of our site investigation. We completed our work, which included developing the foundation recommendations. Much later, during the construction, we were asked to take part in the foundation approvals process, amongst other things. Several of the structures required the removal of several feet of surficial material because it was collapsible. I entered in one such excavation and began examining it. The base of the excavation should have been on a dense alluvium unit. When half of the floor of the excavation didn't look right to me, I asked for an excavator to poke a few holes here and there. There was a silt unit under half the excavation. Having two dissimilar materials beneath a heavily loaded structure could have easily caused unacceptable settlement issues. Together with some of my colleagues, we had to halt the construction work until the engineering could be solved. So did we miss something during the original site investigation? No. The client had rearranged the facilities, which resulted in them being spread to the north beyond the extent of the site investigation. The client thought they were saving money by not allowing us to drill a couple more holes. One last story. We were asked again to perform a site investigation for a foundation recommendation project. The loads would be fairly high, but the client assured us that the natural ground would be very dense. We got talked into using an excavator rather than a drill rig which we would have preferred. We'd completed two or three of the excavations and everything seemed pretty normal. Then we dug into a bread bag at a depth of 20 feet. Natural material my aunt Fanny, we informed the client that we'd have to arrange for a drill rig. They agreed. Unfortunately the findings of that site investigation indicated that we would either need to relocate the structure or design deep foundations. The fill was just too loose. The client said no thanks to both of those options and hired another firm to complete the work that we'd started. The other firm did some additional drilling and came up with the same recommendations. I'm sure that they ended up going with deep foundations. That client sure didn't save any money by insisting that we avoid using a drill rig. I could go on and bore you with more stories like this, but hopefully you get the point. Try not to get placed in a situation where your site investigation is so limited
1: that you just don't do the project justice.